0: Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Doctor Virginia Reed. Today I'm delighted to have on the program Dr. Sue Otram, a senior lecturer in the School of Medicine and Public Health at Newcastle University. Welcome Sue.
1: Hi, Virginia.
0: So Sue, so you've been in the in the business of educating doctors really, about how to communicate with their patients, I believe.
1: That's right. So at Newcastle Uni at the medical school, it was part of the foundation um, of the curriculum uh, many years ago um, that we needed to, um, I suppose, up the game and teach medical students how to um, communicate well with their patients um, as a matter of not just being nice, but having the skills to uh, carry out a consultation for the best um, information and well-being of the patient.
0: Yeah, I guess I have a particular interest in that, in that um, looking at the literature, the, one of the most important diagnostic issues is a good history. It's actually it performs better in terms of making a correct diagnosis than your CAT scans, your MRIs, your more sophisticated tests, etc. So my interest would lie in that particular form of communication. And I believe that it is possible to educate people to improve their ability to communicate. Yes.
1: That's certainly true, and that's we've got much more evidence about what it is we can do and how we can um, train or educate uh, medical students to do that. Um, it's not without its difficulties, and I could come to that in a moment. <laughs> um, but it is what what we say is that it is a skill, and it. Uh, something and like any skill it can be learned with um, awareness and practice and feedback and continuing practice so there have been quite a few studies uh, mostly overseas uh, that um, show us what the best way to do that is
0: and what are some of the barriers to that communication just starting with the negative aspects I suppose
1: (laughs) well um, our medical students, when they come into um, medicine um, at Newcastle, um, are partly chosen because of um, some of their altruistic qualities and the fact that they can communicate or that they, can, they are interested in communicating. And often this means that they're good at talking uh, because we don't really... Um, test them well in the past about their listening skills. So we find that a lot of students are good at talking but need training in sitting back and listening. So that's one thing, but I'm always really impressed at how well they want to do. They really want to be good at this. But what the literature shows us is that as they move through medical school and they become more and more involved in the clinical areas and for us that's years four and five of our program it's a five-year program they um, not so much devalue the communication skills but they put that lower down their priorities um, compared with finding out the facts and all the things they need to know about you know neurology and cancer and and things like
0: that Mm. Understandably, you're pretty swamped by that stage from memory. Yeah, <laughs> yes, desperate a need to. Well, you have you feel as if you have a desperate need to know all that stuff, or you're yes. going to fail. You know, yes. which
1: is true. But the interesting thing is that when you look at um, medicine and the complaints and the feedback from patients, it's much more. Around the communication skills than it is whether that doctor diagnosed the particular type of brain tumour. Uh, doctors are very good at diagnosing with MRIs and other, um, you know, um, pathology tests and things like that. But it's those um, the respect, the telling them the information that you want them to know that the complaints are more likely to be about.
0: And apart from the complaints, because obviously it's important that people are happy with their care from a number of different viewpoints, does it actually affect people's health, their health outcomes, if doctors don't communicate well?
1: Well, as you said, the history-taking is really important. So we've got research that would say that most um, patients go in with a number of things that are the matter, and the first thing they mention may not be the most important for them. So, if
0: there's that doesn't got make a sense, of... does it? <laughs> I mean, why do people do that? <laughs> do we know why? Why patients do that? Yes. Well,
1: yes, sometimes they're leading up to it because most of us want to give a story. And if the doctor says, how are you? They'll say, oh, well, I'm not too bad. I've had a sore knee lately. And if the doctor then goes, "Ah, sore knee. That's
0: right, exactly. Um,
1: And then the other part of that, that that might be a sort of simple thing to fix. But sometimes they have sensitive issues um, that may be around sexuality and maybe wanting to talk about um you know end of life issues then they're testing out whether that doctor's going to listen whether they've got enough time um and i'm sure that you've you know had the situation any general practitioners had the situation of going through a whole consultation and then somebody saying at the end oh I just wanted i'm just wondering whether I could talk about the fact that i'm having trouble with impotence or something like that
0: I suppose some people it's just difficult to articulate what's actually going on. Um, And so is it, therefore, that that listening is what facilitates those people to be able to articulate what's going on better?
1: Yep, yep. So in the early years, we'd be saying to them, um, open questions, open questions, open questions and in fact I was pretty thrilled the other day when I had a fourth year class and I was talking about, uh, I think it was an angry patient, you know, how, how to have that consultation and, and be with somebody while they're angry about their treatment or about you <laughs> and one of them said, I remember in first year you just said keep opening, keep opening the conversation with open questions. And that might allow the patient to slowly come to it, but also then to have a go at saying, you know, there seems to be something else happening here. Mm. So that's the deeper stuff that you were uh, alluding to, I think, that they have skills to pick up cues.
0: Mm. Because often that the patients, I find the more sinister things, it's often that they're actually deeply afraid of what you're actually going to find. But if we, you know, it, it's well known that if you alleviate, if you if you find tumours and things when they're smaller and haven't metastasised, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, then you're more likely to to um, effect a cure or um, make the patient, you know, um, a lot healthier for a lot longer, which is the bottom line, really. You're listening to Wellbeing, and my guest today is Dr. Suat At and we're discussing patient doctor communication. So, Sue, we were discussing difficulties, I guess, on both sides, really, um, and I wondered if there is any general sort of knowledge or any information out there for patients who may actually wish to improve their communication skills with their doctor. For example, a lot of people in a country town, et cetera, may only have one choice. Yes.
1: Yes. Um, that's true. There are um, places where you can get, and obviously the internet is a, a fantastic um, store um, of things. So, the people that have done this best are the uh, cancer support groups.
0: All right.
1: Um, they have a, a you know fantastic through the um, breast cancer um, network is the group that I'm most familiar with, and they will go through in a very methodical way these are the questions you uh, may want to know or need to know from your doctor so you can print out um, lists like that but there are other sites um, as well for more general things and particularly the health consumer sites so going through those uh, some general practice sites will also give you the information because I think a lot of doctors are realising that The better informed a patient is, the better the consultation. Uh, Rather than, I think there was a little bit of this thing of, oh no, you know, a patient who's trawled the internet. Oh no, it's going to take me longer.
0: Mm, mm, Oh, I think it's a, it's that that too is um, a bit challenging. You know, and people go into their defence mechanisms when they feel like they're being challenged intellectually.
1: Yes. Yes, and that's unfortunate. And the unfortunate thing is that GPs are really pushed in country areas for time.
0: Uh, GPs in general are really pushed for time.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that that's absolutely true. Um, but again, the research would show that if you get that the full agenda out at the beginning, then it doesn't necessarily take longer the patient's agenda I mean not the doctor's agenda only not only the doctor's agenda but the doctor's agenda is really important as well.
0: Well you have to keep to time because people get pretty annoyed by waiting for a long time in your waiting room which is fair yeah. enough that's pretty disrespectful.
1: Yeah and so if we um, educate if patients are educated to um, have a list and say this is what I want to talk about up front and the doctor mm. says is that the whole list well that's a lot there Can we prioritise that? We can't do that all in this consultation. Um, And and even some patients won't like that because they feel as though they've gotten there and they want that whole. But um, usually you can come to that um, it's not all the patient's way and it's not all the doctor's way.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, I think the other thing that you need to be aware of is the other people (laughs) that need to be seen. So, and the doctor needs to be aware of the, 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 sometimes the actual need to, to um, get organised so that they can see as many people as they need to. So do you teach nurses communication skills as well? Because a lot of the practice nurses are, are, you know, doing a lot of the work now.
1: Well, we don't, um, but they do in the Faculty of Nursing. So it's an interesting um, thing to reflect on, really, that there are really core skills there across all the health professions. And we've been working on an interprofessional education project uh, for the last couple of years. And we're realising that um, this is not done well. This would be a beautiful opportunity not only to teach nurses about patients, but also nurses and doctors how to communicate well with each other. I
0: was just going to say, that's crucial.
1: Yep, and we don't have at Newcastle any formal interprofessional education at the university.
0: Incredible, the, huh? Yeah, but the rural schools do. That's important that the rural, I think too, probably rural medical centres um, would teach that because... More and more, we're seeing nurses, nurse practitioners, uh, do a large bulk of the work, particularly very remotely where I work. Um, they're crucial, and being able to communicate actually by telephone and by um, computer is yes. becoming another fe- whole another field of communication. Yes.
1: We've um, because we didn't know what the new grads, you know, what they were feeling about their. Um, education about other professions and so we went out last year and we did group interviews of new pharmacists, new um, nurses and new doctors and it was truly amazing what they said about Um, what they didn't know about each other. They didn't know what their roles were. They didn't know um, how to talk to them. The nurses in particular were really felt intimidated um, by the doctors. The doctors felt intimidated by the nurses.
0: (laughs) Um,
1: They felt devalued by each other and they felt as though um, they really wanted to get to know something about the other person in a real-life situation. So... Look, we're hoping to look at that more in the clinical area. Perhaps it has to happen when they're out in the clinical areas rather than in university labs.
0: Oh, look, I couldn't agree more. Just the opportunity and the excuse to do that is welcomed, generally speaking. And even social,
1: social um, occasions. Um,
0: Absolutely
1: we we I was just thinking um yesterday that what would be really great to do is to have a series of films around just mainstream films about around um, health emotional health you know psychiatric issues a beautiful mind always a wit which is about um, you know a woman with advanced cancer and have a, a, and a social event around those, and discussions out of the curriculum, because the curriculum
0: is so crammed, absolutely, but be able to give to um, continuing medical education points to all of the all of the various bodies for that yes. you know that that 's what really lends it uh, the ability to attract an audience and also to um, put it on the agenda as an important very important yeah um provider of health care to the general public you would hope, I would think as a patient that your nurse, your doctor your pharmacist are all communicating but we know that that is an area that isn't, is not well done
1: and we came at this from the point of view that if um, that the majority of adverse events around medication were due to uh, you know, communication errors mm. Um, or that was part of it. So that was the majority. And so that's why we got this national grant to look at the interprofessional communication with those three groups and medication safety.
0: Oh, that's good. When you get to the stage where you're getting grants, at least it's on the table.
1: <laughs> and we thought we had to go back, yeah, we had to go back to basics and say, well, what do they have? Because we're not seeing it any, anywhere much in Australia. Um, in, a, yeah, in a systematic and a longitudinal way over their programs.
0: Hmm. You're listening to Wellbeing and my guest today is Dr Sue Ottram and we're discussing communication in the medical field in general and its effect on patient outcomes. So there's research, basically the reason for the research is that it gives a basis on which you can then apply for funding, etc., to look into areas that are still not well done. Is that basically it? And I believe that at the moment you're looking for recruits, basically, for, um, uh, is it a study that you're doing? No, not a study. No, just part of a
1: teaching and learning. I think what we're increasingly doing at the University of Newcastle and other universities is um, drawing that research teaching agenda together and once upon a time it was that meant this research teaching nexus they call it and it meant you you're talking about your research when you're in teaching so if I'm, I've done some research on um, at the moment the way doctors talk about schizophrenia to their patients and relatives then I would bring that into my lecture but also it means the things that you teach that you also um, bring a scholarly look at So what I'm doing at the moment is um, trying to develop more a patient-as-teacher program so that patients, people who have um, an interesting and relevant story um, that fits into our curriculum are brought in um, to tell that story. And we may... uh, An an example is that um, recently I had a woman who had was born with... um, without limbs on her one of left or right side and um she it wasn't that she came in to talk about how doctors are bad communicators she talked about she came in to talk to them about how this had affected her life and what a wonderful life she'd had she was a paralympian her parents said you you know we've got two other kids and you're going to be treated exactly the same so it was quite inspiring. On the other hand, um, I've had people come and talk about um, their experience with irritable bowel syndrome and Crohn's disease where, you know, it's been a struggle and to, and it's not again about um, the, all the medical drugs and things they've had to take but how does it feel to have chronic diarrhoea? and not be able to control it and therefore not to go to work and your relationship breaks down, and things like that. So that's a very powerful thing for the students to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people may have seen films in the past where patients were paraded onto a stage and all the doctors in their white yeah. coats were there and they said, walk. And the person walked lopsided. I see this sign. <laughs> and so it's not that. It's actually using the patient as an expert Mm. Um, so yeah, we, you know, some people have a really good story to tell, and it'd be great to um, be able to recruit them uh, to um, help us in this way.
0: Mm. It's impossible to put an old head on young shoulders, but there are ways of <laughs> ex- expediting the process. That's basically what we're trying to trying to do. I think after you've been with patients for a while, and you do notice the. The way that the disease affects them and how they manage it, and that's the key to it really, is individualising.
1: Yes, yes, and there's all those stereotypes, but and I suppose the woman with the limb, born with a limb deformity, was one of those stereotypes that, oh dear, poor thing.
0: No, oh, no, that's right.
1: So, you know, and for them to um, see that. Um, but also with. Um, you know that was a few years ago i had somebody um come in to talk about their um experience with crohn's disease which is you know as you know a, you know can be a very severe um gastrointestinal problem requiring surgery and i've been actually wanting to get somebody again since then so if there's anybody out there who comes to newcastle you know a couple of times a year mm. <laughs> um but you know people who've had um treatment through psychiatric um you know, and and had, you know, recovery for them, that's another thing that's really misunderstood. You know, sometimes people say, well, yes, it's been really hard, but this is where I am now and I've accepted it um, so that the students can get an idea of what recovery means to that person um, rather than to themselves.
0: Mm. Yes, that's right, broadening their perspective on life. So mm. whereabouts do um, people need to come to? How much of their time does it take up, et
1: oh, Look, For this particular thing, it may only be one um, hour a year. Obviously, I'd need to meet with people before um, and talk to them. If they were happy about it, we might even do um, these days, we can do quite good quality recordings <clears throat> and, um, you know, have that um, in for the students to look at that, that hadn't been able to get to the lecture. Well, that but would
0: be good. That would uh, basically get them caught up with telehealth, which is another thing that's really taken off and is, yes. you know, video conferencing is really um, important to rural and remote areas.
1: And our students are now, dispersed from third year onwards third fourth and fifth year around all so some of them can't get to lectures after that time um, which I find a little bit frustrating because I'm I do like the face-to-face I like to see the students there uh, in my lectures but you know it, that that's the reality yes now that but um, there is another way in which we use patients. can I talk about that
0: yes certainly
1: The other way that we um, involve people, and these aren't patients, so it's very different from that expert patient that I talked about, but um, we find that the best way for patients to learn skills is, is obviously if they could practice and communicate with real patients in hospital, but people in hospital these days are very sick often, and we have many more medical students Probably than, certainly than when you were a medical student. Yes, yes. uh, In Australia, we've um, doubled, even tripled the numbers. So what we have what is called a simulated patients. And they're people who may have an acting background, and often that's terrific if we can get actors of all ages, from um, adolescents up to older people, older citizens, (laughs) as long as they're mobile, and they come along to either the university or some of our clinical sites such as, oh, look, in Taree, um, Tamworth, Armidale, Gosford, Wyong and Newcastle and they are given a scenario, so it's not their own scenario and it might be, as I mentioned before, somebody who's very cross because um, their elective surgery's been um, delayed or they haven't seen the doctor in ED or there's been a mistake made and they're angry and so that patient would um, be playing the role that we've given them and that we've trained them for and the students in a small group of play 10 would take turns at doing that in a two hour session. So we're always looking for new people who um, would be interested in acting for us in that way. You don't need professional acting, but it does help
0: to have been a patient. Sounds (laughs) good. So how do those people get in touch with you?
1: Well, we have a clinical skills unit
0: at John Hunter Hospital
1: and it's called Chameleon. C-H-A-M-E-L-E-O-N so the the um, email address would be chameleon at newcastle edu um, or if it's, um, it has a reception there between eight and four and you could ring that on four nine eight double five two o two, and they could um, they'd take a message for me.
0: Okay, so if people lose those contacts or it's been a bit fast for them, we'll just repeat them. Though, uh, that, so that's K Patterson on four nine eight five five two zero two, or email chameleon at newcastle dot edu dot au. But if people com, uh, Google just chameleon um, Newcastle, it probably will refer them to that site i would have thought yes, yes right lovely that sounds like a possibility for a lot of people yes and i i, I wanted to put out there
1: that there are people in um, we have students um, teaching in all those other country sites so some of the listeners may um live in armadale or tamworth Tari, and often smaller places it is harder to get a, a bank, we call it, of actors. And the other way in which um, simulated or standardised patients are used is when we have exams. Um, this is, you know, something that um, is often, uh, needs a bit of, uh, what would I say, fortitude because um, we might have a half day of exams where the person has to pa- play exactly the same Patient for the students, but it's really important that we assess the students. It's no good saying that this is important and then not as not.
0: <laughs> no, that. that's right, especially not when they've got to learn lots of other stuff. You've got yeah. to put it in there with the rest of the stuff. Yeah.
1: And the other thing with the the second part I should mention with the simulated patients, they are paid because it does involve, not only involve a few sessions a year but there's training involved and, and certainly with those exams we wouldn't expect people to come along for two days and not pay them.
0: Absolutely, I think that's a wonderful thing. I've been speaking with Dr. Sue Ottram, who is a Senior Lecturer in the School of Medicine and Public Health at Newcastle University. I'm Dr. Virginia Reid, and all of us at Wellbeing wish you well.